This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of Going Clear, Lawrence Wright's book about Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. And joining me here is Hannah Rosen, Slate's double X editor. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And coming to us from way out in Claremont, California, where she's spending the semester teaching at Scripps College, we have Megan O'Rourke. Hi, Megan. Hi there. So as in all our audiobook clubs, uh, we recommend that you listen to us after you read the book, since we'll be discussing Going Clear and Lawrence Wright's reporting in great detail and depth. The book has expanded from its 2011 New Yorker profile of Paul Haggis, and it serves as sort of as both biography of L. Ron Hubbard and a history of Scientology, and also an expose of some of the organization's most totally crazy abuses and offenses, as well as their cozy relationship with celebrities like Tom Cruise and John Travolta. So, all right, Hannah and Megan, it is time for me to assert control over you pre-clears and increase your <laughs> havingness. I spent most of this book, you know, agog at like the paranoid weirdness of Scientology. But a part of me kept going back to something that Wright wrote on the very first page of the book, which is that, you know, the church declares or claims that it has 4.4 million new members worldwide every year. But in fact, actual statistics suggest that there's only like 25,000 Scientologists in the United States. And so is this religious organization or cult or Ponzi scheme or whatever it is, is it really worth like 400 pages of Lawrence Wright's time? <laughs> That's so funny. I thought that was such an odd decision in a nonfiction book. I understood his loyalty to honesty at that moment, but it really was a downer for me because there's a barrier to entry. This book is absolutely amazing. I mean, I just bow down to Lawrence Wright. I cannot believe the feats of reporting that went into this book. There is no detail he leaves out either about L. Ron Hubbard's life nor about the institution itself. As I read it a second, you know, as I was looking a second time to prepare for this podcast, I even forgot some of the insane, insane <laughs> details, which yes. I'm sure that we'll get into. But there's unbelievable numbers of them. But I wish he hadn't started by saying there's almost nobody who's a member of Scientology because I was like, I <laughs> there's 400 pages devoted to 25,000 people. So, you know, it was an odd choice. Well, he makes this case sort of throughout for the reasons why they're worth paying attention to, right? They have a billion dollars in liquid assets and they're not afraid to spend them. And and then there's this long section in the middle where he compares them to like Om um, Shinrikyo, that Japanese cult mm -hmm. that attacked the Tokyo subway or to the People's Temple. and But like – Scientology is guilty of a lot of things, but it's not guilty of, like, killing 
millions, right? So, like, is that a legit comparison, Megan? Did you buy that? I didn't really think he was comparing them to them so much as he was contextualizing it. And he was trying to parse out the questions about cult versus religion. And, you know, Michael Kinsley began his review of this book in the New York Times by saying something like that creaking sound you hear is the sound of Larry Wright bending over backwards to be fair to Scientology, (laughs) 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 which... I thought was true. I understand that the Church of Scientology does not think it's true, but um, this seemed to me an eminently and unsensationalistic book, given how sensationalistic its material was. But I thought that section, Dan, to me seemed more like he was kind of trying to contextualize. On the one hand, he was saying, well, all religions begin with messiness, which I thought was extraordinarily generous of him. You know, he sort of talks about the ways in which the Catholic Church uses certain monks self-flog or self-flagellate. And, you know, the origins of religion being messy and violent. But, you know, then he goes into why one might be slightly concerned about the question of whether this is a cult or not, because there are these other cults that have been quite violent. I actually thought that was kind of a a totally legitimate section of contextualization that maybe should have even come earlier in the book. Well, he doesn't really fully contextualize until the very end of the book. Yeah, there, where it's like he lets, the last chapter. Yeah, it's the last yeah. chapter. And I'm going to put this out there. So Lawrence Wright, earlier in his career, published two books, which I would say are possibly responsible for me becoming a journalist. One was a book called Remembering Satan. It was about a single case of recovered memory because that was the era when recovered memory cases were very strong. And the second is a book called Saints and Sinners, which came out in 1993 and particularly which has a chapter about Jimmy Swaggart and Jerry Lee Lewis as cousins. And those books are clearly written in the voice of sort of American culture. Like you're learning something about America, something that's quite universal, you know, the sort of sinful nature of all of us and how we can trade places between our sort of the saints and sinners in us. And there was a kind of universal message. And then later in his career, he became a deep investigative reporter, right? And so this book is written in that mode because you have to write it in that mode in order to get through Scientology and not be sued and all that. But in some ways, I almost wish it had been written in the former mode, that this is just interesting because it's a slice of American culture. There's something very Americana about these cults and sort of how they play out, particularly Hubbard's early life, you know, the the sort of vaudevillian era and, you know, the way in which he worked psychology and Jungian and Freudian stuff into his thinking. You know, it's just very American. And so it stands on its own because of that, not necessarily because of its actual importance or how much money it makes or how many people belong to it. It's just plain interesting. I totally agree, Hannah. And I just also want to say I'm a huge admirer of rights. And this book is, it's an extraordinary feat of reporting. I felt a lot of what you're feeling, which is that he could have made more of the American story. And also, you know, another thing I thought reading this book is that one of the appeals of Scientology, because that's one of the kind of questions here, right? Why is Scientology so appealing? And in particular, why is it so appealing to Hollywood and to people who have a lot of cultural weight so that there's, you know, maybe only 25,000 members, but a lot of those members are very influential people. And, you know, one of the reasons I think that Wright starts to get it but doesn't maybe go as deeply into it as he might have is the kind of – it's a religion based on the promise of self-actualization, right? It's, you know, if in Catholicism you have to believe in the virgin birth and you're, you know, supposed to be a creature of faith and, and certain forms of it, you know, care a lot about – giving alms and so on and so forth. Here, one of the central tenets is that like you can free yourself from thetans and you can become a more happy and powerful person who has gone clear, right? And that's a very American, 20th century American preoccupation, right? And very Hollywood. The most important thing in Scientology is not belief in like a 
greater being, but simply belief in yourself. Right, right. It's so American. It's very self-help. You know, it's very personal power. It's very influenced by lots of things that were going on through the era that L. Ron Hubbard was growing up and living. But you don't get a lot of that context. And you understand why, right? Like the church sues the hell out of people. It threatens people who write about it. You have to be really damn careful, get every fact straight, and that's enough of a job. Like you you don't right. – exactly. you can't relax if you're writing this book. And so, so you felt some of that. I definitely felt that, especially in the first half, that he was so busy getting the facts. Also, I want to just say, and I think we need to say, that it's kind of an inc- – incredible feat because one of the ways the church has gotten people not to, and certainly right implies this, not to write about them is that they've thrown so much what Wright says is obfuscatory material right. at people who are trying to write them. And, and when they showed up for a meeting with the fact checkers at The New Yorker for his original piece, I think they had something like 48 binders or 37 binders. Seven linear yards. Of <laughs> yeah. That's what they said. <laughs> That's like actually one of my favorite scenes in the book, and as it was in the profile, is this long, amazing day spent with Scientologists in the yeah, Times Square office. Yeah, it's actually seven linear feet. Oh, seven linear feet. Sorry, not <laughs> yes. yards. And 48 three-ring binders of supporting material. Right. So, you know, you get a sense of <laughs> you have to be in the trees a lot of the time rather than the forest. Right. Well, and that's – I mean that's like of the least of the things that they do to journalists. I mean one of the most right. amazing sections in the book is that section on Paulette Cooper, Right. She's the journalist who, in 71, published a book, like one of the first real investigative reports into Scientology. And I'm actually going to read this section because this is one of the most amazing sections in the book. There's so many stars and exclamation points next to it in my (laughs) copy. So she wrote a book called The Scandal of Scientology, and here's what happened to her. After the scandal of Scientology, Cooper's life turned into a nightmare. She was followed. Her phone was tapped. She was sued 19 times. Her name and telephone number were written on the stalls in public men's rooms. One day, when Cooper was out of town, her cousin, who was staying in her New York apartment, opened the door of her delivery from a florist. The delivery man took a gun from the bouquet, put it to her temple, and pulled the trigger. When the gun didn't fire, he attempted to strangle her. Cooper's cousin screamed, and the assailant fled. Cooper then moved to an apartment building with a doorman, but soon after that, her 300 neighbors received letters saying that she was a prostitute with a venereal disease who molested children. A woman impersonating Cooper voiced threats against Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford at a laundromat, while a Scientologist who happened to be present notified the FBI. Two members from the Guardian's office broke into Cooper's psychiatrist's office and stole her files, then sent copies to her adoptive parents. Cooper was charged with mailing bomb threats to the Church of Scientology. In the courtroom, the prosecutor produced a threatening letter with her fingerprint on it, and Cooper fainted. Later, she remembered signing a petition, which may have had a blank page underneath it. In May 1973, Cooper was indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office for mailing the threats and then lying about it before the grand jury. Oh, my God. I mean, can you imagine reading that story and thinking, oh, I think I'll write the next book? Right. Well, (laughs) yes. It's like the lesson of this book is is seriously like don't even do a podcast about Scientology, for God's sake. I know. No, right. no, no. One definitely thinks that. They have an annual litigation budget of $20 million. They have hundreds of lawyers. I know lawyers who have done cases only like tangentially related to Scientology who ended up with cars parked in front of their houses for months. And so the very idea that Lawrence Wright would go into this, yes, I think, contributes to the sense of like the book itself being completely hemmed in by – incredible outside weight being put on it by outside forces, the forces of truth that Lawrence Wright wants to produce fealty to, but also the forces of Scientology that are waiting to pounce on anything that is even a tiny bit wrong 
or even interpretive about this book. And that makes the book mm -hmm. a lot more, I think, sort of humorless and less fun than it potentially could be, such that the humor comes from stuff like this, which is actually legitimately awful. I mean, he's exactly the right person to take on the task because these are subjects he's interested in. He often writes about this, you know, this edge between cult and religion and sort of why people get drawn to these things. It's a, it's a lifelong obsession of his. And he's an amazing investigative reporter. And he's got the weight of The New Yorker behind him and the weight of his publishing company and a Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, he won't, you know, go big or go home. He won't mess it up. So I want to go back in a moment to this discussion of the Americanness of Scientology and why people get into it as represented in Paul Haggis, who's one of the characters who runs through this. But first, I want to uh, pause for a word from our brand new sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, I'm pretty excited that Audible has signed on as a sponsor of the Audiobook Club for all of 2013. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now, although possibly you cannot listen to it on L. Ron Hubbard's e-meter. Uh, Audible has a special offer for Slate Book Club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. And we like to recommend a title to our listeners, of course, every month. And they've got Going Clear. It's narrated by Morton Sellers. But presumably, if you're listening to us, you already read that. But they also have next month's audiobook club book, which is Swan's Way by Proust. They have it in like five different editions, Megan. Uh, they have it abridged. They have it unabridged. Fabulous. I know it's kind of gauche, but I find myself leaning toward their abridged version because it's read by <laughs> Simon Callow. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try and please use our URL once again so Audible knows that you're an Audiobook Club listener. That's audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. All right. So back to it. Sorry, Megan, I interrupted you. Even with all that weight behind him, I think his book was not published in the UK, or at least I heard him talk about the fact that it he couldn't get it published in the UK because the libel laws there are different. And he was, in fact, going to testify, I think, in um, Britain, perhaps before Parliament, I guess, about why it might be important to change libel laws to make it possible. Well, to libel laws in Britain are so completely insane. Yes, yes it would be yes. great if this was yes. a spur toward fixing those. Yes. I've actually heard him ask the question of why you took this on, and he doesn't give an entirely satisfying answer, like I was terrified or I hired lots of bodyguards or anything like that. He just kind of, you know, well, I thought it was important and I needed to tell the truth. And Well, it is interesting that like there is, I mean, any every Scientology story always has the part where they're like, and then the knocks on the door started. Right. But there is no section like this in this book. I mean, there's a long, hilarious conversation with the Scientology's PR director at Times Square, the Condé Nast offices, but there is no sense, at least from the book, that... Lawrence Wright has been hassled or harassed in like the typical traditional ways that reporters are. And it's hard to know whether that's because of the enormous weight that he holds in, in the reporting community or whether it's just because he's smart enough to know that reporting on that stuff just makes other people more scared to write about Scientology. I mean, maybe he is getting phone calls every day. I don't know. I saw him speak in Santa Monica about a month ago, and he talked about that, and it did not seem like he said they had not come after him in the way that they had gone after other journalists. This brings me to something that I did want to talk about here, which is Paul Haggis, right? He was the original subject of, of Wright's New Yorker profile, and his story is threaded through this book. It's a story of not only Paul Haggis 
getting interested in Scientology and progressing through the church as his career progressed, but then also him eventually splitting from the church. And unlike many of the other people we read about in this book, when Paul Haggis dissociates himself from Scientology, he's not like thrown in the hole. He does not undergo like 20 years of rehabilitation or re-education. They just sort of, you know, wipe their hands of him and everyone's disappointed in him and he doesn't talk to Ann Archer anymore. But like in that respect, Paul Haggis is sort of the Lawrence Wright of Scientology and that having a big profile about him in The New Yorker means that his experience of getting out of Scientology is going to be, end up being totally different from everyone else's. And so that section of Haggis's story wasn't so interesting to me. Like he got out and he was disappointed and everyone was a jerk and he feels bad now. But what was really interesting to me about Haggis's story was how he got in because that is the part of Scientology or really any cult or fringe church or whatever you want to call it that is like totally baffling to me, which is why do people get into this? What appeals to them about it? And Megan, I think you're right on when you talk about the way that Scientology appeals to your sort of American sense of building yourself up, even though Haggis is Canadian, but this sense of building yourself up and, and maximizing your potential. And of course, there is the science aspect of it that is in its name and, it's, and is in all the literature about how you're really using these amazing scientific techniques that real scientists are just too stupid to understand. But what do you guys think is the appeal of something like Scientology? And do you feel like Wright made that clear to you? Did he make you understand how it is that either 4.4 million or 25,000 people are into this? There are two things going on in the start of the book when you're talking about the initial appeal of Scientology. Well, first of all, Scientology was had a very different feel in the 70s when Haggis was joining than the reputation that it has now. I think the words he used are it had a giddy, playful error in the mid-70s. It was like being a Jesus freak. You know, Haggis right. was one of these wayward kids. You know, his dad was always mad at him. He was running away, didn't quite fit in in school. And I think it collected kids like that the way a lot of freak religious movements did in that era. And then they talked about Hubbard enlisting young people in romantic adventures, often at sea. You know, there was an air of like, <laughs> you'd go on this boat, you'd have a lot of sex, you'd grow your hair long. You know, it just seemed fun. So, so that's part of it. The other part of it is that it was a self-help movement which didn't patronize to you. You know, it's, it started by saying we take the – I forgot the exact language of it. But it's like we take the uppers and we make them more upper. That's we not, take the able and yes, make them more able. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it did not portray you as crippled. Now, it ultimately did attract a lot of people who were mentally ill or, or could have used some medication once you had children involved in the movement. But there was some appeal to that and to, particularly to people who were involved in Hollywood, which is a difficult business business and really competitive, I think there was some appeal. And then it was so organized and systematic. You know, it, it, it had this understanding of the mind. I mean, like many things do, right? There's the analytical mind and the reactive mind, and the reactive mind is what holds all your fears. It's effectively the subconscious, and the analytical mind is effectively the executive function mind, and you're trying to tamp down the reactive mind and build up the executive function mind. So, so all that is fun. It's fun, and it's, you know, it feels like it can help you get a hold of your life. Sign me up. Sign me up. Exactly. I agree with everything you've said, Hannah, about the attractions of it. But I think just to add to that, that they create this celebrity center, which catered to the young creative class in L.A. at that time who were coming to try to make it in Hollywood. And it, it became a networking center. You know, it became a way of having a built in community. I mean, think about how hard it must be to arrive in Hollywood wanting to do this thing, not knowing anybody. And you can kind of go to this place that gives you courses in becoming a better version of yourself. And you've got a built-in community right away. 
I think that's, you know, was also a really fundamental piece of this early on. Now that in the beginning of the book sort of is parallel to the biography of L. Ron Hubbard, which seems separate and extremely fascinating. There's sort of how right. Scientology yeah. was received by people, say, walking into Hollywood or John Travolta right. or Christie Alley or whoever happened to wander in at the time. And then there's just kind of who was L. Ron Hubbard, because he's born in Nebraska in 1911. He's coincidentally a contemporary of uh, my friend Margaret Talbot's father, who she wrote about in the book, The Entertainer. Exactly. He's sort of Mm -hmm. a contemporary, grew up in the same place, and he was a science fiction writer. And so there's these twin things going on, like the early days of Scientology, how fun it was, and also L. Ron Hubbard and what just a complete batshit lunatic, (laughs) crazy man, you know, but also just impressive, charismatic he was. And a real American character, as you were saying, like I kept thinking about L. Frank Baum, who's a very different... had some of those same kind of, you know, was fascinated with technology and wrote, you know, what kind of not science fiction exactly, but the Oz books. But before he wrote the Oz books was, you know, always going about and sort of getting involved in the new and the modern and ideas about the fantastical elements of the world. And that is so much, you know, Hubbard is fascinated by self-hypnosis. He wrote a set of what Wright calls prescriptive mantras that he thought hypnosis was going to cure him of. And it says things like, I can write. The mind is still brilliant. Masturbation was no simmer crime. I do not need to have ulcers anymore. I am fortunate in losing Polly and my parents for they never meant well by me. I believe in my gods and spiritual things. My magical work is powerful and effective. I love that he was doing self-hypnosis to tell himself that his magical work was powerful and effective. You know, the numbers 7, 25, and 16 are not unlucky or evil for me. I am not bad to look upon. I am not susceptible (laughs) to colds. I mean, you know, it almost feels like a prose poem to me. But I absolutely agree. I mean, Hubbard, that's – is. It's sort of the densest part of the book, but it's hard to characterize in the brief time we have the kind of complexity of Hubbard. It's interesting that you compare him to Baum because he reminded me of the wizard, right? I mean, for so much of his time on that boat, he's locked in a room doing magical things that no one understands. But even before that, he's such an amazing, like, American fraud. I mean, just his military career was delightful. I loved the like 10-page chronicle right. of him being relieved from duty over and over and over again because of the idiotic things he does. But because it's World War II and everyone keeps getting killed, they just keep giving him boats. They right. give him yeah. a boat and he fucks it up and right. then they take his boat away. Right. Yeah. The amazing thing that he took so many people out to sea and he didn't – like nobody knew how to sail the damn thing. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. And then there you're like there are darker elements to that, like his treatment of the women, right? Like his yes, wives, absolutely. you know, who he beat and left and sort of said terrible things about and was tortured about and had this sort of horror of women, you know, his children who he generally yeah. treated horribly, both his own children and the children who showed up on the boat. I mean, he was and these little throwaway details like that like how he just sent a letter to the attorney general saying that his wife was a communist. Right. <laughs> And like like in the middle of the Red Scare, like that's insane. Yeah. 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 And how he threatened one of Sarah, who I think is the second wife, you know, he kidnaps their child and then says, or takes the child, I should say, and then says that she would never see Alexis alive again unless Sarah goes with them. I mean, in this way, I should distinguish he's very different from Baum, who was quite women loving. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not across the board comparison. But yeah, there's something very troubling. I mean, I came away and I think Wright intends for us to come away. Wright seems to suggest that there is a kind of manic, depressive, paranoid, schizophrenic quality to Hubbard, right? That it's part of his great charisma and his great desire to find more, to make meaning, to be more, but that it also led him to be, you know, susceptible to delusions. 
you know, Dan, you referred to the whole later on, you know, at one point it's like, so as Scientology develops, he started to kind of, it seems like turn on the people who are closest to him and declare them suppressive persons. And, you know, they would have to wear a certain kind of suit and eat, eat without utensils. Right. Yeah. And they were being kind of rehabilitated because they had been thinking suppressive thoughts or anti, you know, anti-Hubbard in some way. And there's a real kind of built-in level of punishment from early on in this. Well, I mean, you talk about Hubbard being delusional and paranoid in some ways, but and so by extension, the book portrays Scientology as an organization in that way. Like one of the most amazing mm-hmm. things about this book throughout are is like the amazing level of overreaction, like paranoid overreaction that Scientology commits to in like every case, whether they're pursuing retribution against someone who they believe has wronged them or punishment against someone inside the organization who they think has gone astray. It's just like they have such a lack of perspective, you know? Although, you know, once again, the sound of creaking, Lawrence Wright bends over backwards to make it seem as if this is a normal part of any religion like this. He at the end talks about his time living with the Amish and how important it is to separate yourself from the rush of the outside world such that you can connect to a kind of eternal seeming rhythm and, you know, connect to a set of truths that that's what it's about. And then also how quickly that can become abusive, that kind of exclusion and isolation can become abusive, but how it's a typical part of every religion slash cult. Right. And so in the book, I mean, a huge proportion of this book focuses on the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is what, Megan, what you were referring to before, the group of people who have committed some sin against Scientology and who are therefore in the middle of rehabilitation. But it's rehabilitation in name only, right? In most cases, you're there at the whim of some superior officer in Scientology. You're there for some possibly unlimited amount of time. I mean, there are former close associates of Hubbard's who've been there for 20 or 25 years and who will probably never get out of the RPF. Um, And that, to me, seemed like the big investigative takeaway of this book on Wright's part was not like all the fun Tom Cruise stuff. But this was like the big flashing, I didn't know about this light to me. The abuses that people in this scenario are subjected to. And then also the totally fascinating way that most of them, if you ask them, Wright seems to say, would say, oh, no, I'm here by my own volition and I don't want to leave. And I found that really amazing. And that whole sequence where the husband and wife team, who at one point were seemed to be the heirs apparent to L. Ron Hubbard when he died, who ended up on the outs with David Miscavige, who ended up in charge of Scientology, and her attempt to escape from the LPF, which ended up with her making it all the way to Boston, to Logan Airport. And she was oh, yeah. uh, walking up the steps to her flight to Maine, which would have reunited her with her husband when finally a guy from Scientology had flown out on a private jet and like sprinted through the terminal to like get to her, saw her on the steps and she just immediately like deflated and went with him and went back and she never saw her husband again and then she died. Right. And that is the end of the story and it's like Jesus. Yeah. Christ. Annie and Jim Logan were their names. Yeah. yeah. And it was actually Marty Rathbun who later defected from the church who brought her back and right. Rathbun is an important part. This brings us to you know something I really want to say. One of the reasons I think this book is really important is – that until I read this book, and, and really until I read Wright's New Yorker profile, but it's much more apparent in this book, I thought that Scientology was, you know, one's problems with it might be that it seemed to fleece some of its members or, you know, that there was this kind of 
pyramid scheme of getting more and more money from them for the church that, you know, maybe seemed questionable and, you know, like a a kind of cultishness that was troubling. But on the other hand, I always thought, how is this different from the Catholic Church, right? Right. It's like you're allowed to, they signed up for it and they're willing and able participants and it's strange and so on and so forth, but it's just this kind of wacky thing. Reading this book, at least according to what, how Wright portrays Scientology, one comes away feeling that this is actually a deeply troubling organization that not only is, as you say, putting people in this rehabilitation project where they say they want to stay, but actually many of them do not have the financial means to leave. They've maybe been in Scientology their whole life. They don't really have an, a sense of the external world. But also there's an organization called the Sea Org where children sign billion-year contracts to be part of the Sea Org, and they work. It's, it's child labor, very difficult and troubling material here, I think. And to me, that is one of the really important parts of the book. And one of the things that I would hope about this book is that it would start a kind of deeper conversation about what is an investigation into, you know, what really is going on here. I want to also add to that, which is that I disagree that there's a distinction between the fun celebrity parts and these horrifying RPF parts. In fact, I think one of the revelations for me was that the celebrities involved in Scientology knew or sort of knew some of the things that were going on or could have known. Like there's an amazing story of John Travolta on this woman, Spanky Taylor, whose baby was taken away from her and she was his handler and they seemed to have a really close emotional connection. And clearly Spanky was being sent to the RPF and put through all this grueling nonsense that the religion does to people. And clearly Travolta sort of could guess that that was going on because he was very interested in her case. And they are the only people who have the power to say anything about this because everybody else is told that they are a nobody and has no connection to the outside world and is incredibly intimidated. And, you know, I came away from this thinking that Tom Cruise is a despicable human being who took advantage of all of this and must have known some of this that was going on, behaved abominably towards the women that were cycled through his life and is a monster, basically. I actually thought that was just, ugh, horrifying. No, I I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I really came away thinking I will never go see another movie that Tom Cruise or or actually any of these top-level Scientologists are in because... Larry Wright has been going around saying, you know, it's a religious institution as termed by the IRS, right. as determined by the IRS, which gives it a lot of leeway because we have freedom of religion. And and certainly there is a thread of Scientology that seems to work very well for some of its practitioners and really to bring them happiness and actualization, right? And maybe we can pull that thread out, perhaps. You know, that's one of the questions Wright asked. Is there a way to kind of have Scientology without what seem like human rights abuses if if Wright's reporting is true, which I take it to be. But, you know, there is a sense in which these top-level celebrities are absolutely implicated and have the responsibility to, you know, they have the power and the access and the ability to look into what's really going on and call for some changes. I mean, I think that's true in some extent. But like, for example, the story of John Travolta, I am not in the slightest bit surprised that he actually was completely obtuse and knew that something was weird with this woman who used to be so important to him, but that she just disappeared from his life. But like the whole point of Hollywood stardom is to insulate the star as much as possible from anything that might disturb them in any way. And the entire relationships of Scientology to its stars is even more so to do that, to make sure that they never have any sense of what is actually going on behind the scenes at Scientology. I mean, one of the most amazing 
scenes that made that clear was that time that Ann Archer was like doing auditing in Clearwater and it turned out that her son was there in the RPF like doing slave labor at the exact same time but they made sure she never saw him and right. never knew that that was going on right right i agree with you that it's different with tom cruise because as the last half of the book makes clear and what are some of the most entertaining sections Tom Cruise and David Miscavige, who's now the CEO of Scientology, they seem like each other's only friend. And so at this point, there's no difference between those two people, and they are both functionally co-CEOs of Scientology. And so Tom Cruise, I agree with you, does come out of this looking like an absolute total monster. This is what makes Haggis interesting, is right. that he has to wrestle with the question of why didn't I ask questions before? Um, why didn't I look more deeply into what's going on? But as he says, you know, they discourage you from... Um, Looking into it and right. then make you like feel, as one of them puts about, it, about right, learning about Jews from Mein Kampf. Right, right. right. exactly. <laughs> which seems uh, like a bad analogy in a lot of ways, um, one of which is that in, in America, you know, the IRS is kind of bent over backwards towards Scientology. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of complexity in the celebrity relationship. But now that this book is out there, right. I feel like they have a responsibility to at least ask the questions, the hard questions about the leadership in the church right now. So the scene that I imagined for myself was the moment when Penelope Cruz was like, Fuck this in her Spanish accent. (laughs) Take this e meter and shove it up your nose. Exactly. There are a number of really fabulous details, one of which I have to mention is that one of the things Miscavige is really good at is realizing what celebrities want and need and and kind of how to make them feel comfortable. As Wright puts it on, I think it's page 207, he surrounded Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman with an approving and completely deferential environment as spotless and odorless as a fairy tale. A special bungalow was prepared for their stay at Gold Base along with a private rose garden. Miscavige had heard about the couple's fantasy of running through a field of wildflowers together. So he had Sea Org members plant a section of the desert. When that failed to meet his expectations, the meadow was plowed up and sodded with grass. I just love yeah. that. There's so many amazing details here. He met their expectations and then some because he met yeah. their expectations in the usual way that everybody meets stars' expectations, like you know how Beyonce and Jay-Z went through Cuba, I'm sure, in the same fashion, through a right. field of wildflowers. But then there was a, <laughs> but then there was, you know, even the greater way he met them was that nobody was allowed to treat them like a celebrity or, right. you know, ask right. them for their autograph. So this was the one place in the world. This was really interesting and explained a lot to me where a true celebrity could walk around and not be hassled because we all know yeah. that's like a rare gem for a celebrity. They can't even go to the 7-Eleven and get themselves right. a Snickers bar, right? So right. here they could walk around these bases right. and base, act Tom, normal. Tom Cruise can finally audit someone without that person asking him for their, yeah. his autograph. Another great detail was, I'll just say quickly, Tom Cruise sitting outside of Home Depot with, I can't remember who it was, having to <laughs> determine the mental state of the people who are walking out. And I just thought, there you go. You could be walking out of a Home Depot and Tom Cruise might be there trying to identify your mental state. One thing that came across to me in reading this and thinking about the way that Scientology has been covered, especially in like the last 10 years or so, is that there's some point at which the benefit of having Tom Cruise and John Travolta and then like a cavalcade of lesser celebrities like Ann Archer and Chick Corea, like (laughs) is there some point where that outlives its usefulness because of the increased scrutiny that the organization gets Mm. as a result. Like Gawker would not care about Scientology if it wasn't for Tom Cruise. Lawrence Wright potentially would not care about Scientology if it wasn't for Tom Cruise. Like at some point, should Scientology like cut bait with some of these people so that they can just go off and have their their 25,000 people can like 
live their lives or is like the financial windfall from having these people associated with it so great that they always are going to need to cultivate celebrities? Well, I think initially the question is impossible to ask because a lot of the Hollywood connection is born out of Hubbard's jealousy and dream to be accepted in Hollywood, you know, and then later to have Battlefield Earth turned into a movie. So it's like so part of, you know, the dream of Scientology. And then over time, you know, Scientology depends. Who's the woman who does Bart Simpson's voice who just gave them $25 million? Like partly oh, right, it's just Nancy a Nancy Cartwright. Right. Yeah, like partly yeah, the, the economy of, of Scientology, which you're thinking hard about throughout this book. Like how the hell do they have this money if they only have 25,000 members? Well, it's because they have some members who give them extreme amounts of money and then they operate on a slave labor system, you know, right. in which the general Sea Org member is allotted, you know, three pieces of lettuce a day or whatever. And $50 and, a month. And $50 a month. Right. So it's, uh, so it's that it's combination. A week. Oh, 50 a week. Sorry. <laughs> I think maybe, you know, which is a real there windfall. Goes Megan bending over backwards. <laughs> to be fair, I might be wrong. <laughs> so, you know, you'll be the Fair only enough. one whose door is not knocked on at the right. end of this, you know, after this oh. podcast airs. But ultimately, one has hope because of the way they treated Lawrence Wright, because of the way that Paul Haggis was able to walk out, that it might be, and Lawrence Wright hints at this at the end of the book, evolving into a normal religion. In other words, he's, he's, he's right. kind of leaving you with the impression that maybe this is just the, you know, cuckoo phase that every religion goes through and then evolves into a normal phase. And maybe when it's evolved into its normal phase, it doesn't need the light of all these gay, which is another thing we haven't talked about, that all the great celebrities of Scientology seem to be, you know, just kind of like suppressed gay people. Um, To go back to your question, Dan, I think it also inoculates them to some degree. I mean, one of the really telling and to me very upsetting details in this book is a meeting between John Travolta and Bill Clinton shortly before uh, Primary Colors came out in which Clinton was bending over backwards to be helpful to Travolta and Scientology across the world, right? Because there are all these countries like Germany, which were very uncomfortable with Scientology. And Scientology was trying to kind of, you know, firm up its presence in those places or or at least kind of inoculate themselves against some of the actions against them. And uh, Bill Clinton bent over backwards to be helpful to Travolta and to Scientology, which if there were not figures like Travolta, you know, being in films in such a huge economy, American economy, I don't know if Scientology would be so inoculated. And because one of the big questions I had at the end of this book is, you know, there's a mention at one point about the possibility, a call for Congress to investigate the IRS tax exempt status of the church. And Lawrence Wright hints at this or gets at this when he talks about why the church is particularly upset with certain members for defecting has to do with the fact that they have a lot of information about how much, you know, manpower and kind of labor has been given to Tom Cruise, for example, for free. Right. And that much labor going to one private individual in the context of a church is potentially problematic. So what did you guys think? I mean, do you can you ever imagine there being some kind of invest because there is at one point some sort of FBI investigation into the gold base or something like that, but that goes wrong. I mean, there's a lot of seems like kind of partial attempts to get into the murkiness of this on the part of the government that never go anywhere. It seems to me like we're less than 10 years away from yeah. some incredibly calamitous investigation that functionally destroys Scientology. I mean, I would be really surprised if there isn't one. I mean, the, the yeah. religion has shown itself to be really resilient in the past, but given what we know and given the way that the internet in particular has revealed aspects of Scientology that were meant to always remain secret – both aspects of how sort of totally on its face ludicrous its cosmology is, but also of the abuses that lie behind it. It's hard to imagine that something won't happen no matter how much money they have at their disposal. But, you know, crazy stuff survives in America sometimes. And they do have David Miscavige running it, who seems like 
a genuinely evil mastermind who of the type who maybe could keep going for like 40 years. Like he just yeah. seems incredible. What was your guy's favorite Miskovich story? I think mine was the time that he strangled someone on the day that they were announcing that the IRS had declared them a religion <laughs> because he was angry about how the dress rehearsal had gone. He is like a figure the Sopranos could not have invented. I mean, he's a genuine small-minded thug, right? Yeah, like he yeah. became a rising star in Scientology when he was 17 years old. You know, there's many people who romanticize. There's like the L. Ron Hubbard era and the David Miscavige era, although, of course, right. like the L. Ron Hubbard era doesn't seem that great either. But right. still, let's allow them to romanticize that. And then you get to the David Miscavige era and he beats people up. Lots of stories of him, you know, punching people, choking people. I mean, my favorite story is hands down the Bohemian Rhapsody story oh, yeah. where they play the I mean chairs. I was imagining like this sadistic like a scene in a movie you can't even imagine it's like a sadistic game of musical chairs in which Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is playing and he says what that the people who get kicked out are going to be sent into the hole is No that... he says that every no. on, the on, only the person who wins gets to stay at gold base That's every right. single other person will be shipped off to some faraway land separated from their family and will never get to come back yeah, I mean, what the hell? Like, that's just sicko. Who even thinks of that? And then, of course, nothing happens, right? right? So right. it's it's really this kind of elaborate psychological pas de deux, you right. know, of sorts. That's, I think, one of the core stories in this book because it gets at the way in which there are these abuses and yet the complexity of trying to approach this from any angle is that those people were desperately trying to stay where they were, which was not a very, you know, many of them were being punished. They were all um, in the RPF. They were all in the RPF. Yeah, they were all in the RPF. So they were desperately trying to stay. Now, you could read that in one of two ways that, you know, the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. But also there really does seem to be this internalization of the idea that you have failed or sinned and you really genuinely need to be rehabilitated. And we in America we're reluctant to tell people that their ideas are wrong, <laughs> you know, that their ideas about themselves are wrong. So that to me is like the, the crucial story. Yeah. And there's also this, you know, very sort of Freud era, Bruno Bettelheim era idea right. behind Scientology that whatever's wrong with you is your own fault. So, you know, right. even your physical exactly. ailments are your own fault. And so you're forever trying to rehabilitate yourself and sort of find out what's wrong with yourself. And so you're sort of stuck in this loop of self-recrimination for your whole life. Now, of course, we haven't gotten to the worst thing, which is the single thing that Lawrence Wright is not able to figure out, which is what did David Miscavige do to his wife? Yes. Where, is Shelley, yes. Miscavige? Where yes. is Shelley Miscavige? Who has been yeah. gone since 2000. Seven, and just no one will say where she is. His loyal wife, like his loyal and loving wife who stood right. by him, you know, as they said, she was the only person who could tell him when he'd gone too far, when he was, you know, even more out of control than his usual out of control. She basically was his enforcer and then she's gone. Yeah. No one seems to know why or no one is willing to say right. why that is. The yeah. PR guy from Scientology tells Lawrence, right, oh, I know where she is. <laughs> but that's all he gets out of them. I just want to share one more Miskovich story because it's too good and it'll just give readers one more sense of what the book sounds like. Um, this is page 176. It's the fishing scene when David Miskovich <laughs> goes fishing with his wife and her sister and her sister's husband, John Brousseau. Brousseau baited the poles with salmon eggs and then showed the others how to cast. He said to just let the line sink to the bottom and then sit back and wait. Maybe a trout would take a bite. Brousseau recalls looking over at Miskovich five minutes later. He was visibly shaking. His veins were bulging. <laughs> you got to be kidding me, he said. This is it? You just sit here and fucking wait? <laughs> Brousseau said that was the general idea. I can't stand it, Brousseau remembers Miskovich saying. I feel like jumping in and grabbing a fish with my fucking hands or cramming the hook down their fucking throats. <laughs> that was the end of the fishing trip. That is so a scene with Polly. 
Oh, my God. And just the way he ends it, that was the end of the fishing trip. Yeah. I mean, one of the active questions here is whether he's an abuser of steroids, and that has created a kind of roid rage, I, right. I think, right? Right, because he made a big point of telling everyone he wants his body to look like that. Right. right. And he also had asthma from a young age, and so he's taking a lot of steroids that were prescribed to him right. as a young child, and he, his growth seems to have stunted. So it does seem possible that this anger is, is really you know something from that. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I was going to add to this Shelley Miscavige is just that there is a kind of precursor for that, which is what happened to Mary Sue uh, right. Hubbard's last wife, who also, I mean, people kind of knew where she was, but she was just shundled off to the side and made to remain separate. And one of the thoughts about Shelley Miscavige is that, you know, she's up in Lake Arrowhead at near one of the bases, you know, kind of in seclusion. But it does seem disturbing that no one has seen her or you know, there's been no public appearance. Right. Him. And then it's amazing that for David Miskovich, it seems like in some ways the disappearance of Shelley is one of the many ways that he is trying to align himself with the legend of L. Ron Hubbard. You know, that right. the things that L. Ron Hubbard did, which were creepy even in the 1960s, are like legitimately horrifying in 2013. To me, that's the difference between someone who chooses to go into sort of let's use the tradition of self-flagellation, right, among certain monks, right? The, the argument in defense of Scientology is like this is a willing, right? It's like what you were talking about, Hannah, about the Amish. This is, you know, people are willing to do this. They have chosen this. This is part of the religious kind of purity and asceticism of it. But the troubling part about this book and the way in which I think the church's defense of kind of what's going on doesn't hold up is that you see all these people trying to leave who are brought back kind of against their will, you right. know? They're followed to, you know, motels in Texas where they have to call 911. They are, you know, hunted down on the the airport in Boston, as you said, Dan, and then never seen again. I mean, it's a very – people do try to leave and they're not really permitted to. Though the church denies that. Yes, that has been the source of newspaper investigations of the church for a long time that kind of hung up 911 calls or, you know, that slice there of people who have tried to escape and haven't been allowed to escape. Thank you very much, Hannah and Megan, for joining me to talk about Going Clear and Scientology. The book definitely seems to make clear, as Wright says, in Scientology, there's a real problem with unmocked org form, overworked and interpolated executives and staff. Yeah. I think we can all <laughs> yes, agree on that. Yes, we can get that. to the language. Yeah. The language is incredible. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Interpolated yeah. is definitely Interpolated is a yeah. fabulous word. It's very evocative. I feel like yeah. I know what that means. I feel interpolated <laughs> I do too. I sometimes. feel interpolated at times, and I'm yeah. sure I could use auditing. This um, book made me feel interpolated yeah. quite a bit. The language is amazing, yeah. and like then there's that whole section with L. Ron Hubbard talking about how angry he gets when language is obfuscatory or confusing, <laughs> I'm like, what yes. the hell, dude? <laughs> you feel and like that's it, part of his special genius is right. his language. You know, the havingness of the preclear. I wrote down some of the language just because it was so rich. Yeah, he says that one needs to assert the preclear's havingness. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, all right, but thank you very much for joining me. This has been fascinating. And let me know when the cars start appearing outside your front doors, everyone. Okay. Uh, a program note, our next audiobook club, we're going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of Marcel Proust's A la Recherche de Temps Perdu by discussing the first volume of that saga, Swan's Way. It was published 100 years ago in Paris this year. So pour some tea, eat a madeleine, and read or listen to Swan's Way, and then join us for our discussion on May 3rd. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. 
Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And for Hannah Rosen and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.